Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the weekly podcast that explores the nooks and crannies of living in a body. Sometimes it's the two of us having a casual conversation through the filter of that day's topic, and other times we have special guests who add their voices to the chat. We are yoga educators and body workers with decades of experience as practitioners and teachers. It is with reverence and joy that we choose to take these conversations off the mat and into the microphone. Our aim is to understand the human experience through the stories our bodies hold and the stories they tell. Since having a body is the one thing we all have in common, it seems like a good place to start. We are your hosts. I am Teresa Tobin Macy. And I'm Sherry Sadoff Hank. Join us on this journey of discovery as we sleuth our way to the connections of our individual tales to the collective experience of being alive. We started a live program this week called Camp. And so some of our listeners have gathered to create an experience that takes these conversations into the world. So it feels as if you're all being represented by this incredible group of people who have come together to, to give form to the formless. I don't know. Is that a thing? <laughs> I think there is a thing as giving form to the formless. And for those of you who aren't local and weren't able to make it to the live gathering, we wanted to share some of the highlights and the experiences that we had Sunday at camp. So for those of you who are just tuning in, camp is an acronym and you know, we've been teasing it out, but I'll just, let's just throw it all out into the mix right now. So C was our first day and we were you know, aiming to create community and touch on communication and connection. Those were the, the C's that drove us. And I think that we, we set a really nice foundation for all of that. You know, we came together, some people knew each other, some people didn't, some people had heard of each other, some people had, you know, seen each other, but it was the first time this particular group of people were together in the same place with an intention that they, you know, when, whenever you go to a new thing, you sit in a circle and you talk about why you're here and who you are and all those things to kind of begin the conversation. And there were two things, really, basically two things that came up for why people were here. Yes, so me type came up with almost every participant to take an opportunity to carve out some time that was 100% dedicated to taking care of themselves, their self-care and their and connecting with community. So this these two over I don't know I didn't want to say over these two motivating aspects came out over and over again. Time for self-care for me and also to be in community. So I found it and, you know, Sherry, you and I have talked about this. So interesting that both were covered. The time for me and carving out time for me as well as forming community and being part of the collective whole. And which fell perfectly, organically, naturally into our mission. It's amazing when you start something and, you know, this is a creative and really heart-driven passion project, this podcast that we're doing. And we both came from teacher, we're teachers. We came from teaching yoga and meditation and, you know, Teresa massage therapy and yoga therapy and all of the things that moved us as, as individuals that connected us to this, this larger network of humans who are also doing this work. And so we get out and we start talking about the things that matter to us. And, you know, we sort of formulate this mission that, that also kind of organically fell in, which was connecting the individual to the collective. And every single thing since we articulated that has somehow supported that idea. So for, for individuals to gather for me time, for individual time, and at the same time, have this desire, a craving. And, you know, the time that we live in is, is informing this as well, Re emerging from pandemic, from, you know, sort of quarantine, from isolation, that community is part of the me time. The individual and the collective cannot be parsed out. They cannot be separated completely. And yet there are these distinct flavors that add to, to this wholeness. 
which I find extremely exciting. <laughs> and also this desire to be out in nature and to embrace the practice of youthfulness. That's another part of camp is to play like a child, to recapture that curiosity and, you know, that childlike view of experiencing new things, almost a, a reset or a starting over as we're emerging into these new ways of gathering and being outside. Well, you know, I kind of love nature, you know, you might know that, but <laughs> to find so many other people who enjoyed being out in nature, we gathered on Snipes Farm under the shade of a beautiful oh. tree in a circle, most sitting on the ground, but there were plenty of benches and chairs for people who did not want to, you know, who preferred to be grounded through their feet rather than their seat on the earth. But what a beautiful and shady <laughs> area that we found. <laughs> for everybody to get to know one another and to share their motivation for coming and a little bit of their own personal story. I'll be honest, I was, I was nervous, not for the, the leading of a group experience, which is something that feels like a natural thing to do, but for the, the mindset of reemerging. I know that with all of the work that I've done over these, these many decades, <laughs> many, many decades, I'm 173 years old. <laughs> you look good for 173. Thank you, darling. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> but the, the idea that I have a lot of mindset work that I need to do to really fully reemerge back into the world. And, you know, I stopped teaching public classes about a year and a half ago, and I had done teaching on Zoom. I had kind of, you know, pivoted and done what everyone else had done during the pandemic and figured out how to, to apply my life to this virtual experience. And I got comfortable doing that. I, got, I have not taken an, an in-person yoga class since quarantine, do it privately. And one of the gifts of that was creating a really sustainable and I won't say solid, but formed home practice, which feels wonderful. The other side of that is where are all the people? Where is that community? Where is that peace? But this idea that uh, even with all these practices, we're still human and we still are susceptible to fear and we're susceptible to resistance and all of the things that keep us from really fully embracing what is, what is there. And so doing camp for me was an act of self-service. It was self-care in a very profound way. Like I've said before on this podcast, I will never demonize a bubble bath. I think like when we talked about the koshas, we have layers of our being. We have surface area and we have deep, deep areas and all of them need care. So take the fucking bubble bath, get a glass of wine. If you're a wine drinker, get a glass of grape juice, whatever it is, a cup of tea and enjoy that experience and feel how it is nourishing. And at the same time, the deep dive, I don't know if you can hear Luna. She's saying hello. Hi, Luna. I heard her. Reading, study, you know, meditation. There are so many ways to form practices and form these things around us that serve us, that nourish us, that are deep self-care. And just, you know, so much of what we do is also figuring out what do we need in this moment? Maybe I just need a massage. You know, maybe, and I don't mean just, I'm not minimizing the massage because <laughs> that goes deep too. But maybe I just need a haircut or, you know, a, a new top. I don't know. There's so many ways to, to flavor this. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the positive of being able to craft a space and the time for a sustainable practice. So that is one of the benefits of practicing at home. You eliminate all the drive time, <laughs> right? And you give yourself a little bit more okay, time. So, so what you're saying is I'm doing it for the climate. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, that's good. I'll, I'll take it. I'm going to write that down on my list of reasons why I'm not leaving the house. <laughs> but yes. So you're, you're reducing your carbon footprint of driving from one place to another. <laughs> yes. And I'm sticking uh, to it. Uh, yes. But, you know, crafting this sustainable practice is a beautiful way to incorporate self-care. And you know, what is self-care? One of the motivators of some of our, are the stories that our campers shared with us was 
this real desire to have some me time and to take care of self, to prioritize self-care and to put that on the list. And it was an interesting time for me to sit and listen uh, because some things that came out was even though we have the practices, sometimes there's a resistance to them. And I'm trying, I was thinking while I was listening to different stories, is it a resistance to the practices and to self-care? Or is it a matter of priority that, you know, we have a lot of obligation to work, family, you know, cleaning the house, doing the food shopping, whatever that list of chores are that we know have to get done. And when you look at them, you know, they absolutely have to get done. There needs to be food on the table. So is it a resistance to approaching and, and carving out the time? Or is it a priority issue and the things that have to push it to the side a little bit? And is it an either or? Can it be that? And maybe we've talked a lot about patterns. You know, we get stuck in our patterns that sometimes even if we are thinking of things outside that that pattern, it may be hard to create a new pathway. And one of those, we talked a lot about neural pathways, and I have a lot to learn about that, but this idea of creating new neural pathways. So the people who showed up were clearly interested in prioritizing self-care and having something to hang their hat on outside of, you know, just kind of deciding in my everyday pattern, oh, well, now I'll do X, Y, Z for self-care something was offered that they committed to and were able to get to. And I, again, I don't want to talk about after the because and all of the stories that maybe brought people to camp, but I'm, for myself, I know when I'm resistant, I'm so curious about this. This has been something that kind of enters my field of curiosity quite a bit. And that is why do we resist the things that we know that we love, that when we're doing it, we know taste good, feel good, sound good, you know, look good, all of the things that nourish us. So I know when I'm on my mat, I fucking love it. I feel like I'm doing something good for myself. I know what I'm doing on the mat to a certain degree. And what is it that still requires an outside source to make me accountable for doing it? You know, the self, the, the practice, the home practice that I've sort of created here is still online doing it with someone else. Or if I think about it, I'll take my own class that I have up on YouTube, but it still requires something else to be that, that accountability thing may be part of it. I don't know, but I know it feels good. So what would keep me from that? And I know we've talked also about resistance being required for growth. So maybe there's a lesson in that resistance that I'm resistant to learning or <laughs> seeing or to understanding. I don't know. <laughs> you know, in, when I talk about body work and fascia, I'm looking for the resistance yeah. in tissues, places that uh, resist flexibility or mobility, places that feel a little bit stuck or tethered to some of the surrounding tissues. I can call that an edge, a resistance, an adherency. You might call it a knot. Whatever that terminology is that we look at, we're seeking it out in an effort to apply a technique. And that technique may be simply awareness. It might be, you know, a myofascial technique that kind of changes the qualities or the consistency of the fluids within the body. But over the years, I've really come to understand that those places that I seek out through palpation and with my hands that the body represents and tells a story sometimes have nothing to do with the physical body at all. And it's the story, it's the emotion, it's a past experience something that is being stored in that aspect of the body that presents as resistance. But if we can find that way of, if I can find that way to help facilitate a change of the resistance in Anamaya Kosha, in the physical, and you have found accountability in being in your classes and knowing that they're on your schedule, that's a step past the resistance. What other 
things, what other patterns, what other mindsets can we explore that say, you know what? I noticed this resistance. I see you resistance. <laughs> so then we have a chance to make a choice once we have that. Years ago, I used to love the author, Tom Robbins. He wrote, even cowgirls get the blues, another roadside attraction. And was it Still Life with Woodpecker, I think was the book where it's a love story that takes place inside a pack of camel cigarettes. Back in the day, I was a camel light girl, but no more, no more tobacco for me. But uh, he, one of the things he says is that camels and not camel lights, regular camels are the only cigarettes that on the side of the package say choice. I mean, he was just this, he played with words so well, which is why if you ever saw even cowgirls get the blues, sucked. A horrible movie because his genius was in his words and it's hard to kind of, anyway, that's a whole other podcast, which it is actually another whole podcast. But anyway, this idea of choice, then to choose to sign up for a class, to choose to do something that makes us accountable, that makes me accountable so that I will do the thing I know I want to. And for whatever reason, just fucking don't do. And then it gets me thinking, you know, we, we assign so much, right? I, mean, I shouldn't say we, I have assigned so much to the self-care being something outside myself that serves myself, that when I started practicing momentary, and I don't think I framed it this way, but as I look at my days, I see that I do this, and I think they are moments of self-care, where throughout my day, I'll just stop and stand in Tadasana. I'll put my feet on the ground. If I'm walking somewhere, I'll just stop. I'll pause, and I'll just notice. And I see my holding tension and I just kind of look around and then I move on. Sometimes it's shorter, sometimes it's longer, whatever that pause is. But it's a moment for me as an individual to take stock of my surroundings, to get this feeling of wholeness in my own self. Even if all of this narrative, all of this story isn't being told every time I stop. As I look at this behavior, I see that as just everyday, mundane, banal self-care that gives me the juice to keep going. You know, that maybe that's part of the self-care. It's, you know, getting to the fuel station and fueling up however you need to do that. Maybe it's taking a walk. Maybe it's, you know, looking out the window for a moment and really seeing the green, all of the different gradations of green, the different hues, different shades of green out there in this beautiful summer, beautiful, very sweltering, hot summer. <laughs> very, very hot. <laughs> and it just keeps getting hotter this week. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so self-care may be, you know, put your feet in water or stay cool. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Maybe that bath will be a little bit cooler than that nice warm bath that we might take in the middle of winter. But what, what exactly is self-care? And you really touched on a lot of amazing points. And I think for me, mindset of recognizing when, just like you standing into Dasana, when am I practicing self-care? And I, my best example is I love having coffee in bed. I don't want to get up. I want to pour myself a hot beverage and I want to sit in my bed and I want to drink that cup of coffee. And for a long time, I allowed myself to have the mindset that that was lazy, that you don't even get up in the morning. You're spending all this time. You're wasting this time in bed when you could be up doing something. And one day I just realized that if I was up doing something, I would not be doing it with an enthusiastic approach because I missed my coffee in bed. So I put coffee in bed on my self-care list. That is how I start my day. Some people start with a mantra or a mudra or a meditation. I start with a nice hot cup of coffee. And then as I get up, I can start to have the mindset to notice Things that I do that care for me. And we know that we have, I have a relationship with my food. So food prep is one of those daily activities that we have to, we do every day to prepare for ourselves and or our families. Three, three, maybe two meals a day, depending on how you are. And of course, a bowl of ice cream or some sort of <laughs> snack. <laughs> but when I have this relationship with where my food came from again, we were at Snipes Farm. A lot of my, my food comes from the farm, eating local, eating seasonally is a choice that I made years ago as part of my self-care. 
And I love seeing all the colors when I come back from the picking up my food and I've got red tomatoes and green peppers and red radishes and oh, all the beautiful colors, squash all over the counter. It just makes me really joyful. And what that suggests is that we have opportunities for self-care in every moment, really. You know, it doesn't have to be something that in the beginning, I think we get, we're conscious of certain things and then they become integrated and we can kind of just move into it. I remember writing a paper in graduate school on the integration of information and how, you know, when I was a kid and I wanted everyone to know I'm a hippie, I'm all peace and love. So on my jean jacket, I had embroidered a big peace sign and I drew a dove on there. And I had all of the things that would let, would show people who I was. And then one day I didn't need the patches. I didn't need the embroidery. I didn't need the signage because it became who I was. And it almost felt, you know, if I chose to wear a peace sign or if I chose to adorn myself with the images of who I think I am, then it was a choice. And, but it didn't, it didn't necessarily interpret that, oh, this is who I am. You would get to know who I was just by being with me. You know, I didn't need to explain it anymore. So this integration happens. And I think that that's true with our practices as well. I think sometimes, or even how we, we frame self-care, we frame the things that we want or we're resistant to, that as we're creating these new pathways now, I'm just, I'm not bullshitting here, but I, I, this is not coming from any neural science website or anything. But my feeling is, or my experience has been that, that there's a consciousness at first that's intention. I'm intending to do this for this purpose. And I know that the outcomes are going to serve me. And then as it becomes I don't ritualized, I don't want to say habit because habit to me in the same kind of like patterns implies a certain unconsciousness, a certain just kind of moving through it. And where I'm kind of falling is somewhere in between a conscious choice and an unconscious pattern. It's, I know it's good, but I no longer have to tell myself the story. It's a part of my breath. It's a part of who I am. So as I'm doing it, there is maybe a, a muscle consciousness or a different kind of consciousness other than having to say, oh, this is what I'm going to do. And this is who I am. It just kind of is. There's an oh, isness. There's an isness. Yes. Yes. It's, it's how you show up in the world. And, you know, I like the way that you talked about the peace and the love signs. Because that practice of self-care and how you were showing up wasn't happening on the mat. It was happening in your day-to-day, everyday life of being peaceful and loving. And just like my coffee, sometimes I've minimized my self-care practices because they didn't happen in a specific self-care place. I wasn't on a mat or on the table or in the bathtub. I was out taking photographs in nature or going for a long walk, stopping to notice, you know, within a month's time, I can show my, my video library, (laughs) my image library on my computer is extensively large. But one of the things I love to do when I go out for walks is notice how nature changes around me day by day. And there are images that I have that are not, that are taken at different times. Like when the buds just started to appear on the trees all the way day by day or week by week, however that long that took, all the way up into full bloom and then the shriveling of them as they were about to fall. But this is a self-care practice for me is being outside, being mindful and really having a relationship with nature, which has helped me to really, really embody the idea that, you know, I used to walk out into nature and say, I'm going outside. I'm going to go see what's out in nature. But after spending all this time out there, it just each and every time I'm thinking what a limited belief that was, that I was joining into something that was separate from me rather than just embracing this idea that I am nature, you know, Why did I think for such a long time that the squirrel was part of nature and the deer or the fox that ran through the field, they were part of nature, but I wasn't because I was human. 
was it just language or did you really think that you were separate or did the language change? I'm just curious because I think sometimes as we evolve through our practices and through spiritual curiosities that we recognize that, oh, that's how I feel. I just said it in a different way that set up a separateness. I never felt separate from nature, but I always talked about it as if I was because the squirrel, the birds, I mean, at least as long as I've known you, I've never felt a, that, that you have separated yourself. I used to say in class, if, who here would be a vegetarian if you had to kill your own? And almost every hand went up. Not only kill it, but if you had to bleed it and you had to, you know, skin it and you had to fillet it or do all the things, you know, this is the separateness. This is, you know, organic vegetables, triple wrapped in plastic that we get from the, you know, the supermarket. When we brought the carrots to the farm, every carrot looked like, a mutant. I mean, they just, they looked like these crazy, almost humanoid forms in strange ways. And yet each one was different. Each one was unique. And I think I may be wrong on this, but I think the carrot is one of those vegetables. You know, we demonize GMOs and yes, some of them probably, you know, shouldn't be treated in the ways that they are, but we've been genetically modifying vegetables and, and food for, for decades, for centuries, probably. I'm not sure when the carrot became that because the carrots we see today are not the carrots, apparently, <laughs> that were the original root vegetable. And so we, we do things because we eat with our eyes. We eat with our eyes first. And so who was the first person who said, oh, the carrot's delicious, but we have to change the way it looks in order for people to actually eat it? You know, that maybe in some ways, and, you know, I know that we're kind of using self-care as the paradigm for this. And so, you know, we're putting everything in the self-care box, but this idea of interacting with our food, real food, and see if we can even just close our eyes and take a bite of something we wouldn't normally eat because we don't like the way it looks. But this idea that, uh, you know, our, our food, our separation, that we are, the way that we grocery shop is it contributes to our separation from nature, or at least our idea of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it was my language or my mindset. It's really when you ask the question was, is it that my language changed or my mindset changed? And I don't, I think that the answer really is I never really thought about it. More so than my mindset or anything is I never thought Am I part of nature or am I not part of nature until I really started some of my practices of mindfulness and meditation and, you know, natural healing, being a holistic, natural uh, practitioner. When I started looking at how the body functions and how it functions so similarly <laughs> to nature, when I started to really conceptualize how integrated we are just in breathing that we exhaled carbon dioxide and plants exhale oxygen, that we were symbiotically linked in, in breathing. When I started to learn all of these different connections of existence and stepping outside with intention, I think that's when I really started to notice embody, not even embody, embrace the idea that I could sit and listen to the bird song as just another being in nature. I think I even said this to you once when we were walking on the farm or we were sitting having a conversation listening to the bird song. And I said, I wonder if they're sitting around saying, hear those humans over there chatting away. I wonder what they're talking about. So it's um, almost like we need to, to, be conscious first so that we can become unconscious. We need to awaken to an idea or a concept, like not knowing I hadn't thought about it. You were, and I, I'm going to say this, I'm going to you know, be really presumptuous and I'm going to say you probably operated with the a natural assumption that you were nature without even ever having to think about it. So it's almost like starting with the unconscious and then you become conscious of language and realizing that, you know, if we were to reduce everything down to the elements, that we are all the same. We are all made of water, air, fire, and earth, and ether, and vibration, and light, and thought. I mean, this is all a part of, well, maybe not, the tree might not have thought the way we have <laughs> thought, or, you know, but it needs light to grow, and it has, you know, the water. It just got everything. So I think once we can, once we see, once we awaken to these things, I know the term woke has gotten a bad rap, and 
I fucking want to bring kumbaya back. I mean, come on, let's let's remember what these things really mean. But I think that like anything else, we can go to extremes and we can forget the nuances and we can forget the journey that got us to this point. And everything like we've talked about this before, nothing is wasted. Nothing. That tree might not have thought, but it definitely has instinct. You know, there's plenty of studies that show that if a tree in the grove is a relation to me, me tree, and they're in need, they pass nutrients yeah. through their, their network of roots beneath the earth and share their resources, share their nutrients and support. Even a tree that is at the end of its life here will offshoot all of its resources, its family through the network of roots beneath the earth. And if there are three trees and two of them are doing well or two of them are in need and someone has more, it will sacrifice itself for the others who need. I don't know if it's a function of being at the end of its life or if it's, I, this is just the guy who was helping us with our garden was telling us this, that uh, I thought that was really interesting too, that there's a sense. And I, but so we apply, we anthropomorphize, we put instinct and thought and consciousness, the same things we would, but is it that or is it just nature? that this is the way things are. This is the way things cooperate. And we've just forgotten. Yes. You know, when I, I was studying a class with Michael Mortali at Kripalu, and he talks about that. I think we mentioned it in one of our previous podcasts that that was our nature. And the more civilized we become, are we actually evolving or are we devolving away from our intrinsic natural connection or connection to what he will call the more than human world, the natural world? And, you know, you, I said that maybe I just didn't think about whether I was part of nature. But in thinking while you were talking and reflecting back, I have always had a plant in my room. For as long as I can remember as a kid, I remember uh, there was always plants that I would find and bring in and care for. Sometimes my house had big trees in it. When I started to become a homeowner, I always had a garden. The first thing I would do was walk into my new place and say, okay, where is the garden going to be and what is it going to look like? For years, oh my gosh, it was you know, I guess I never really thought about it in terms of, am I separate? But when I lived in Bethlehem, the first summer I was there, I started carving out gardens and I took my pickaxe and my shovel and I edged it and I took all of the grass off and I shook out all the dirt and drew a little landscape design. And for years, every year I added a new type of garden, whether it was a flower garden or an evergreen or, or a food garden, I always had them. And when I moved from one place to another, I would dig up all of my perennials, separate them, and then bring them to my next home. So my garden came with me each and every time that I moved. So I left a landscape design for those who came to the places I lived. I left for them to enjoy but I also took it and made it the foundation of my next garden. And people knew this, and I got so many gifted plants. And as they moved from place to place, I knew their origin story. You've mentioned everything has a story. Each one of my plants had an origin story of where it came from, if somebody gifted it to me, why I purchased it. And so I guess I've been a part of nature without... I, I mean, I guess I recognize that I am nature without ever making it a conscious thought, right. but an activity that I just loved talking to my plants. And I have a very different relationship with nature. I love it. And I have those feelings when I, I mean, I've done rainbow gatherings. I'm not in years, but for several years, I'd go out for you know a week to 10 days in the woods with a bunch of hippies. And it was awesome. And I, I loved Brian and my, my husband and I, our first trip was camping in Vermont. I love camping, but when nature gets too close, I get a little skeeved and that's language that I have used for many years. So I haven't really examined where I am today 
this is the story that I've been telling for many, many years. And you know the story when I first moved here from New York City. I lived there for 17 years and loved it, tried to have a green thumb, killed every plant, except for, you know, the really hardy ones that can't die even if you try to kill them. But even on my fire escapes, I could never keep them, you know, keep a plant alive. But I would crave it. I, when I would come home to visit my parents in Pennsylvania, the first thing I would always say is, oh my God, it's so green. It's so green. And for many years before I moved uptown, I never went above 14th Street. So the parks I would go to were Washington Square Park and Union Square and Luna Park and, you know, those kinds of places. But I very rarely got up to Central Park, which was, you know, where nature lived in New York City. <laughs> so I moved out to Pennsylvania and I'm pregnant with my first kid and I think, oh, I just want to get my fingernails dirty. This was, I had done my rainbow gatherings. I had been in the tent. I had, you know, squatted over a shitter in the woods. Like I, I, I know nature. That first earthworm that came out had me screaming <laughs> into the house. And I don't think I put my hands in the dirt for months after that. I mean, I'm sure I had the kid and, you know, forgot about it for a while. But fast forward, I, we did some things over the years, but the pandemic really got me, I had been talking for years about wanting a garden and a food garden. And that's all I've, I just, the image in my head, this crunchy sherry that should be growing your own fucking food. Like, why am I not growing my own food? And because I don't know how, and I've killed every plant. So like, where do I start? So we had this guy come over and he's, he helped create this landscape garden. We did this whole thing in the back, these raised garden beds, and we've been growing food and it's so satisfying. But, you know, now with these lantern flies, you know, how do you deal with that? And then, you know, it's really fun to kind of get everything organized and see the fruits. But then there's also disease that happens in the garden. You know, I don't really know how to deal with it when, you know, the big caterpillars come in. I don't want to hurt them. They're on my dill. They're on all of the the fuzzier, you know, kind of herbs and stuff. And I just, and the carrot leaves and uh, it's, how do we deal with the, the stuff that we have to deal with that's not idyllic, you know? The self-care piece is getting my hands dirty and feeling like I'm interacting with nature in a way that is productive for both of us. We talked about communion, I think in the last episode or the one before, you know, this idea of, you know, really being with other humans or nature or animals and letting that continuum of energy be of service. But when disease comes or there's something that I don't understand or know how, what to do with it, I, I just, you know, that communion gets interrupted and the self-care piece becomes, oh, woe is me, <laughs> What do I do? I love you, food. Please be strong and resilient so that we can absorb the fruits of our labor, literally. Yeah, right? Oh, and so not too long ago, last week, I was with a friend up in upstate New York near New Paltz, and I took a, a tour with a naturalist. And he was, you know, eating shit off the ground. And he's saying, this is how you test for things that might be toxic. And he's, you know, showing I had learned about plantains and other things in nature. But if I can learn one thing each time and remember it, I think I'm good. And it was just so fascinating to watch him take things that had clearly been eaten by bugs, like there were holes in leaves and things, and just shove it in his mouth. And I was like, oh, so when my Swiss chard has a little wormhole in it, I can still eat it. You know, I was still kind of peeling around the holes <laughs> and trying to, you know, present it in a way that my eyes would be happy. It comes back to eating with our eyes first. I think my I got over my eyes have to be happy with my food. And that's only part. There are things that I see on my plants, like those outside leaves and things that are really dirty and stuff that I do put back to compost. But when I was young, I worked on a farm. It was my very first job, Gob Farm in Oldbridge, New Jersey. I worked there. And as the season progressed, the corn got more and more wormy. It was still delicious. But when you open the top, that's where the worms were living. So it was kind of gooky and there was often a worm in there and lots of dirt looking stuff, which I won't <laughs> even imagine what it is. <laughs> worm poop, worm poop. Yeah, worm poop. But one of my jobs was to clean the tops of the corn, you know, to scrape all that out, cut it off so that when people looked at it, it was pleasing to their eye. It tasted amazing. But nobody wanted to open their ear of corn and see the worm sitting at the top of the ear. That so, would be neat. 
that that became my job. So I guess I got over my like, ooh, that worm, ooh, you're early on in life. I created a new neural pathway. You know, they say, you know, when you work in, you know, places where you have to clean up a lot of poop or vomit or things that are just really abhorrent to us, that we do get to a point where it's really no big deal. In the beginning, you might be sick just doing it, but in the end, you just kind of, after a time, it becomes a thing. And I, maybe that's how you create new, you just do it. You just have to do it. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, and maybe not only do it, but, you know, we talked about this idea of self-care and connection and maybe doing it with a change in our mindset. For instance, you talked about the first time you saw that worm. And even though I cleaned the worms at the at, off the corn, when I picked one up in my hand in my garden, I was like, oh, bugs. Yeah. But then... I just looked down at it and said, thank you for making my soil just really very loose because all worms do is travel, eat, and shit. Travel, eat, and shit. And I will and thank them from here. Thank you yes. very much. I will not have to thank them holding them. Yes. Thank you, worms. Thanks yes. for coming. Thanks for going. Yeah. And please stay on your own side of the <laughs> garden. <laughs> I had this experience too in the ocean when I was really little. Now, I, my, my astrological sign is cancer. I'm a water sign. I love water, but I don't always like being in the, like I, things in the water kind of freak me out, like lakes and oceans. I hadn't thought about it. We were traveling with my family and I was really little. And uh, the other family had a kid who was a little bit older than I. And we went into the ocean and we were playing all day. And at the end of the day, she said, Sherry, come here and look at this school of fish. It's so beautiful. I didn't go back in the ocean the rest of the time. This was the first day. I went to the pool because I was like, I will not be getting back into that ocean. Now, I've sort of overcome some of that over the years, but there's something about what lives underneath in the ground, in the ocean, that I'm glad they're there, but I'll stay here. <laughs> I'm over here. Hello. So the ocean is a desert with its life underground. Oh, you know, there, America. Yeah, there's a hole. Through the desert of the horse with no name. It's so good. Uh, you know, when I was in the Caribbean, so talking about self-care, I love the water. Water is my self-care. I don't care if I'm by it, in it, drinking it. <laughs> I just love the element of water. Sitting and staring at a lake or a babbling brook or the ocean is one of my most peaceful places. When I was in the Caribbean, um, I went snorkeling and the schools of fish were beautiful. There was so many colors and the water was so clear that you could see. I thought I was like stepping into this really shallow pool because I could see so far down into the water that, you know, I was like, wow, I can't believe they took us out into this little shallow pool on this catamaran trip, but it wasn't. It was really deep. And swimming in there and observing how beautifully and coordinated the fish swam at, in that school, how they could, birds too, how they can move without crashing into each other. Like, man, you watch them flying and you're thinking, boy, on the highway, we're yelling and giving each other the finger, and they're just up there riding the currents <laughs> of the wind or flowing on the water. So Hollow bones. Yes. Knowing what it is that feeds our soul, I think that's self-care. What it is that has a recharging capacity to, you know, an exhausting day. It could be, you know, maybe your self-care, and sometimes mine is this, is binge watching the same mindless <laughs> sitcom or, you know, episode after episode after episode and just sitting down and saying, I don't even care what Will and Grace are talking about. <laughs> I just know <laughs> that I just need some time for my head to be distracted in something light, airy, and uh, that doesn't require a lot of thought. And that's a self-care. And then there's a line, is it where we self-care can move into self-indulgence, you know, that is our self-care an opportunity to maintain a sense of wellness or to inhabit a sense of wellness, grow a sense of wellness, use the word distraction. And I don't know if I would, sometimes I do want to be distracted. Sometimes I just want to escape plenty of, enough things I do that allow me to escape, whether it's a good book, you know, a glass of wine, 
There are things that I do to escape. Even while I'm fully in the moment, like I don't think there's anything that I'm escaping that is bad or that is dangerous or horrible, but just that feeling of escape, that feeling of, you know, getting caught in a story or getting lost in a story or getting lost in a moment. I love that. And I think there are self-care elements to that. I think that when that's coupled with a story that has other elements that are desirous of escape, then the self-indulgence piece can come in and it becomes something else. And I think that it can, you know, there's always a line that we, that is there somewhere. And the line is, is fluid. It can move depending on different situations and where you are in your life and all of that. I used to have a theater director who said that it's important to wallow in the vat of shit. Like if you are wallowing in a vat of shit, it is really important to wallow in the vat of shit, but it is equally important to get out of the vat of shit. You know, that it's not a place to live. And who was it? It may have been a guest from our first season or our second season. Maybe you'll remember who was it who said, or maybe it was someone else. I forget who it was, but it was not me who said this. Said, is this a place that you're visiting or do you want? Oh, oh, it was the resilience people. There's brilliantly resilient. There are these, this, these women who both have really incredible stories. You should check out their podcast, Brilliantly Resilient. I facilitated a conversation on resilience through a local bookstore uh, last year. And they said, when things got really, really tough, that they said, okay, I'm going to stay here. I need to be here. But I'm visiting. I'm not setting up shop. I'm not here to live. I'm here to visit. So there's this sense of moving through, of journeying through the, the tougher times. And I think the tougher the times, and we all, have, this is the other thing that came out from camp, is everyone has a story. Everyone has a story and every story has peaks and valleys. And some of the peaks are higher and some of the valleys are lower, but they're all part of this journey. And so the self-care piece is an interesting conversation to have when it comes to, you know, what are we doing to, to rise above, to move through, to, to be whole and well. Mm. Yeah. And our stories are constantly in a state of flow. Today we may show up with, oh my gosh, it was such an amazing day. And, and tomorrow we may really just feel the the weight or the pressure of a project that needs to be completed or, you know, maybe relationship issues that uh, are trying to get resolved or work through. And everyone does have stories and there's lots of layers to the stories. And that I think is something that really came out in camp is the, you know, when the motivation for coming was self-care and community, there was also a story of, you know, this is what I'm doing in my life. These different sets of responsibilities, working, caring for family. And when we want, when we're looking at where we choose to stop and stay at any given moment, I know my day for sure. I can stop at anything from coffee in bed to being frustrated, trying to figure out the wording for a piece that I need to write to, you know, rolling around and playing in the pool with my grandchildren. You know, where are we going to put our mindset? Where are we going to put our focus on all of the different places, emotions, and events that we kind of cyclically travel through in our day, in our week, in our month, in our seasons. And sometimes it's easy for me to look at somebody else and see their most amazing story and think, oh, look, they got everything. They're, they're in the middle of this amazing life. And to make this assumption that that means that there isn't any of the other parts, instead of this is the part of the day or the mindset that's being shared at this particular moment. So yeah, everyone had a story. And on some days, the story is this is the best day of my life. And on some days, the story is this is my most challenging time. And most of the story is somewhere in between. Somewhere it's just the everyday stuff. And that can be a hard momentum to keep up with. You know, the daily grind, unless there is something coming back. And that's the communion piece. And what came clear was that, you know, they say our basic need to be with people, our basic need to connect so that the self-care piece was framed in a way that required connection with others. So it wasn't an isolated island of me. 
it was me in relationship to this world that I'm in. And I also think that, you know, the, the mindset piece is so crucial. And like you said, everything is always in flux and in flow that we will, even those of us who practice a lot and have this awareness and have these conversations, that sometimes there are really shitty days. But I will say this, my shittiest days today will never be as shitty as the shittiest days that happened before I started my practices and understood that I have tools, like you talked about being on the table and looking for those resistances and deciding which tools you'll use, which techniques to use in order to meet those resistances at where they are. So the same thing for me that if I'm feeling really crappy, I give myself a, a, the, the chance to wallow in the vat of shit because I understand the value of that. But the, the ignition time between getting into the vat and getting out is much shorter and is much more meaningful because I have these tools and techniques that I get to use to examine and say, you know, is it really shitty or am I just feeling sorry for myself? <laughs> am I, you know, where can I find gratitude? And again, we talk about this a lot, not in a toxic way, like everything is good. And so I can ignore the shit. No, the shit is there to be examined. But after we deal with enough shit, we understand how to, you know, clean it up <laughs> a little better. <laughs> I'm wondering, like what I'm thinking about while you were talking was, uh, you know, the experiencing of all emotions, the creating a safe space without labeling it like this emotion is bad. I'm sad. That's bad. I don't want to stay there. This one, I'm happy. That's good. So to create the space to experience whatever is coming through our consciousness, whatever enters into our day, we have choices. We can experience it or we can resist it and be like, yeah, I'm not going there. I'm not touching that. And I'm wondering what, as you were talking, the thought came to me when you said whether I'm meeting the resistance where it was on the table, the thought occurred to me that as we experience all emotions, as we allow ourselves to, as you said, wallow in it for a while and then step on out of that shit, but is the experiencing of each of those emotions and each of those interactions and experiences the reason that they don't become resistances in body in our bodies that we don't take this thing that we don't want to deal with and put it off to the side that's that's i'm sad i'm not dealing with that i'm mad i'm angry i'm just going to stuff it someplace in my experiencing the stuffing it is the resistance that we're looking for sometimes right there's physical injury so i don't want to minimize and put everything into one egg basket but sometimes What's held in the body are the things that we were resistant to experience. Maybe that's where they come up with the name resistance. Right? And that, you know, the body is also referred to often as a container. And so we talk about the body holding and telling stories. Well, it's not going to hold on to something that we've let go. It's going to hold on to something that we think we need. You know, that sort of, you know, when we, we talked about digestion and taking food in and the nourishment sort of stays in the body, but then the waste leaves us. But I think the mindset piece is what turns the whatever it is we're holding on to into what we think is nourishment rather, but it's really waste. Mm -hmm. We haven't let it go. So the waste piece builds, you know, this idea. And I think we do this a lot in our culture, this binary thing of, you know, good or bad, this or that, that I think when we reduce things to good or bad and even slap any, you know, judgment label on things. It limits our curiosity. It limits where we can go in order to understand and even, you know, approach healing or dealing with or self-care. All the things that we would make choices about are limited if we reduce things to good or bad or any kind of value judgment like that. It also kind of damps down our awareness of, you know, if... Sometimes it gets confusing what an emotion is. Am I angry or am I frustrated? I, I've talked about that before. But when we're not pushing everything away and saying, yeah, that's, uh, we have this binary. I don't want to deal with that. That, that is not going to feel great once I let it happen in my body. So I'm just going to push it over there. But the awareness that comes from creating that space to experience and feel what those emotions are, it helps me to, oh, yeah, this is what frustration feels like. And 
I personally believe that when I create the space to feel it and say, okay, I'm really frustrated with this project. I'm just going to stop for a minute and experience what's going on in my body. It passes. But when I'm like, I'm so angry and I just can't get this done. And I don't know if I'm frustrated or mad. And I got all, like, all this stuff in my fists. You can't see me, but my face is turning red. My fists are clenched up. It just gets locked inside all that energy. Like I'm, I'm shrinking and holding it inside so tightly that it has to latch on someplace. I, I get this, this image of contracting, like you're contracting yeah. around it like a, a snake almost. And I think we're using curiosity and awareness as synonyms. I think that we mean to say like that idea of limiting the curiosity limits the awareness because without one of those, like curiosity or awareness, they, they work in concert. Like they're, they have to be, you know, you can't be aware unless you're curious, you know, I guess you can't really be curious unless you're aware of it. So it's, they, they play so well together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when we started, we started talking about self-care. What is self-care? And I think this is an important part of self-care, allowing us, allowing ourselves to feel without judgment, to experience what is coming up, to create this safe space within ourselves. You know, maybe it's facilitated, you know, if that's something that anyone might need, but to this self-care is permission to feel whatever is coming up, to experience it and to take time. You've mentioned in, I think it was in season one, <laughs> that you said, you know, and this was a difference that we talked about between us way, way back when. You said, I know when I need something and I don't have a problem saying I need a little bit of me time for myself. You had mentioned having the Fridays as your day that you recognized, hey, I need some time for myself and I'm going to take a day of silent meditation. Yeah. yeah. And I would say, oh, I never would have thought to to do that. I would just be like, okay, I'm just going to like, I'm going to push through all this and get everything done. And that helped me. It changed my mindset, that one thing that you discussed that day to say, you know what? I need a break. I'm going to go up and go for a walk. and you know, the end result was whatever project I was working on got done a whole lot better <laughs> and a whole lot faster and a whole lot more creatively when I walked away and took my time. <laughs> so. That's great, man. I hope I have three daughters and I hope they were paying attention. I hope they learned that they can also ask for that when they need it. Mm -hmm. You know, because I asked of them to rise to do the things I would normally be doing. You know, they would have to prepare the meals. I did all of my stuff for myself. They didn't have to worry about me, but I hope that they were, they, they took that as, you know, something that they can now do. And I hope that as well, since camp is about, you know, getting to know ourselves, being playful, practicing youthfulness, self-care came up. I don't know. I mean, it just was something that organically came uh, from the group that, the happy campers that all spend the day with us uh, as one of our focuses. And we offered some self-care practices. Do we want to go into some practices for today? What I'd like to offer the listeners is the daily pause, you know, the within the day. It's not the big, you know, getting a mani-pedi. It's not the massage. It's not even, you know, taking a silent walk. It's not a deep dive into reading. It's not, you know, self-study, although self-study does come in, but throughout your day, decide in the beginning of the day that you'll take at least six opportunities or however many that you feel appropriate. But I'd six seems like a good number to start with just as an arbitrary number, but that when you are moving through your day, have a moment of awareness and just stop and find balance on both your feet, maybe roll to the outer edges of your feet, roll to the inner edges of your feet, roll onto your heels, roll onto your toes, and then find the four corners or the three arches of your feet and find Tadasana, mountain pose. You know, mountains, you know, when you're standing there, what is a mountain? You know, we know that there's stillness there. There's mountains that have been around for millennia that are witnesses to all sorts of cycles and human changes and climate changes that it's the, the standing witness. And at the same time, there's movement, there's 
There are babbling brooks and they do babble. They talk all the time. There are nests in trees with birds flying around. There are critters under the ground. We've already talked about the earthworms. There are root systems that are communicating. There is community, connection, communication. There's everything that we talked about in the first day of camp on this mountain. So as still as you get in these moments of pause, also notice the movement. Notice the animation of your form that are, is solely based from breath. You know, just the act of breathing brings animation. You can't be completely still as long as you're alive. So breathe. And notice where there might be a natural sway. You know, do you naturally sway side to side, back and forth? Are you making little circles? And see if you can ground a little bit more. Imagine roots coming out of the soles of your feet to still you just a little bit more. And notice the sounds. Notice what you see. Activate your senses. Be the witness. And this could last for 10 seconds. It could last for a minute. You could stay there. At, don't get lost in the reverie, though. That's the mindfulness piece. Don't get lost in the woods of your mountain because there may also be a forest in that mountain, on that mountain. <laughs> and then when you feel that that is satisfying, then you just kind of, you know, smile, do an inner smile. Let, you know, your soft palate soften and lift as your inner cheeks lift, as you feel that, all right, and then move on with your day and do that a few more times and just notice. Notice the difference when in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, when you've, you know, just begun your day and things are fresh. And then by the end of the day, when are you most fresh? Who are you in each of those moments? I think you get the gist. Wow. I love that. <laughs> I have tendency sometimes to spend too much time sitting at my desk and I forget to stand up and just take that mindful break. So thank you for the reminder yeah, man, and setting up, you know, I think there's some apps for that. I don't have them, but you know, to set up a reminder, but you know, I can easily set it up on my computer and maybe I need to start with a actual reminder like ding, ding, it's time to do this until it becomes a new neuro pathway. So thank you. What I'd like to offer is something that might take a little bit more time than, you know, mindfulness moments. So you'll choose when and where you might practice. But my practice that I'm going to offer today is a sit spot. And the sit spot is somewhat simple. If it's possible to go out someplace in nature, that would be a good place to choose your sit spot. If you're happy sitting on the earth, that would be fabulous. You could sit with your back up against a tree or next to a babbling brook on the beach, staring at the ocean, if it happens to be where you live, in a park, in your own backyard. Or if some of those bugs are things that you're thinking about right now, maybe next to a plant in your home, out on your fire escape if you happen to be in the city, next to a window where you can see the sky even if there's no trees. Any place that you can choose that lets you experience nature. And then once you've chosen your spot, if possible, choose a time of day. So if you love sunsets, maybe it's placing yourself in a way to see the sunset every day. Whatever it is, if the time can be close to the same time, that would be also an ideal setup. But don't not do it because it's not the same, not at the same time. And this, the instruction is simple. Just sit. And that's the instruction. Sit and observe. Be part and experience your own true nature by being outside. And with just sitting, watch, tap into your senses, uh, tap into the elements, notice what's around you. You know, notice if the bugs come in, notice when the breeze begins to blow or the sun's movement if you're watching a sunrise or a sunset. Just day after day, just sit. And you can pick the amount of time. I like 20 minutes, but maybe our day doesn't always afford us that, or maybe yours affords you longer. So choose 20 minutes as your ideal, but make it less if that's what your day allows. 
make it more if you have time to linger. And you don't, you know, we talk about journaling a lot. I, honestly, I don't journal a lot. Occasionally, I just have to pick up a pencil and write something down somewhere. It's usually a post-it and stuck to my desk. But anyway, if something comes up, for me, it, I would be more inclined to get up afterwards and take a photograph than I would to journal. But whatever your mode is, maybe it's just in embodying the experience and not having to record it in any way. And as your practice continues, we become more deeply aware of how nature is in a constant state of fluidity and movement. So enjoy your practice. And hey, if you want to share some of your experiences, send us a quick email. I'd love to hear about your sit spot. About your sit spot, about what self-care means to you, about how you in incorporate self-care into your day, into your life. These are things that we would love to hear from you and maybe things that you, you would like to hear from us. You know, what are some topics that are, that have, have been stirred up from these conversations that you would like us to expound on? We're excited to, to move in. When you hear this, I've got Luna going nuts in the background, but when you hear this, we will already have done A for camp, which is coming up this coming Sunday from where we're recording, which is awareness, alignment, and anecdotes. And we've had to do some pivoting for this next camp. So we'll let you know how that goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thanks for being here. We really love having you out listening. And we also love seeing your faces. Till next time. Till next time. Peace, love, and stories. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you heard, please click the like and follow buttons and give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. These ratings help our Grassroots podcast to become more visible to more people so we can include more stories. Written reviews are like stars on steroids. If you're so moved, please write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We are just getting started. So if there's something you'd like us to cover, please email us at anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. Tell us your stories. We'd like to thank our editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. <laughs>